The Landlord and Lawyer Podcast with Ben Beadle and Tessa Shepherdson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Landlord and Lawyer Podcast. Um, he is Ben Beadle. He is the landlord. And she's Tessa Shepherdson. She's the lawyer. And today we're going to have a, a general sort of discussion and a review and look forward with um, solicitor David Smith, who is, um, well, I mean, he's brilliant, isn't he? I always think of David as being a brain the size of a planet person. <laughs> and he's well, he's well known in the sector and uh, widely respected across the sector. And I think it will be interesting to get his take on, you know, what we've got coming down the track and, you know, uh, how we how we move away from uh, current things at the moment. So, yeah, let's see what he's got to say. Yeah, definitely. everybody and welcome and our guest today is solicitor david smith who is a partner of jmw solicitors and also the legal counsel of the now i always get this wrong ben what is it nrla it's a bit of a get, tongue twister isn't get it get your teeth in tessa yeah <laughs> practice makes perfect we need we need to think about that name it, it yeah. doesn't, doesn't roll off the tongue sometimes especially not at this hour that we're recording it it's a really difficult one. National Residential Landlords Association is a bit of a mouthful as well. But David, welcome. Morning. Good morning. I, I, I take no responsibility for the NRLA's name, which I think is just an amalgam of the two forming organisations and was not, not a yeah. name I was a fan of at the time. I said it should be something new. but um, Something new and snappy. But, yes. Um, Inevitably, in these situations, everyone, everyone's idea of the best name was the name of their organisation. So, um, well, naturally, I mean, it ought to be Landlord Law Mark Two, wouldn't it? Or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. Answers so, on a postcard for the best name. It's a compromise name, I think. <laughs> it's a commit committee decision name, as opposed to a, an independently considered name. Could anyway, I think I think other organisations have gone too far down the road of. Yeah, I was just of, thinking of that modern style. <laughs> yeah. No names. I'm not. I'm very carefully not mentioning any names. No. Yes. Um. Right. So we're here basically to sort of, you know, first podcast of the year, January 2021. God, it's been a hell of a year that we've just left behind us. David, what do you think landlords have got waiting for them in 2021? God. God, who knows. Um. <laughs> uh, I always, I'm always cautious when people ask me questions because every time like, I say something on these sort of things, like, I'm wrong. So, um, well, join the club, you know. <laughs> but I think, I think the obvious reality is that COVID is still with us, will be with us for some time. And that has both immediate and long term consequences for the sector. So, immediately, we've still got. Um, until uh, February now, the uh, lockdown on uh, actual evictions, which I think may well extend beyond February, uh, possibly not the same format, but, but I suspect there's going to be some pressure to extend that. There's the court uh, working practices, the alternative working practices run till March, the longer notice periods run till March. 
can't see those ending in March, given that the government's still talking about the possibility of schools being closed till Easter, which is the 2nd of April, is Good Friday. I, I, it seems unlikely that, uh, that the courts are going to suddenly open the week before. Mm. Um, I, would, I would imagine what the government is now probably going to try and do is, is try and have a gentle step down and perhaps make make a shorten notice periods a bit and 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 try to ease uh, court working practices and sort of slowly ramp back up to normal service but i don't i don't think there's going to be a sort of cliff edge as people are sometimes calling it on at the end of march where everything just goes back to the way it was and, and to be fair i never thought there was going to be a cliff edge anyway because the truth of the matter is that even if the courts were to open up full full power, they weren't exactly keeping up with their workload anyway. Yeah. Um, so, so to suggest that the courts will, will open, there'll be masses of evictions, just just assumes that the courts had capacity to do such a thing, which they simply don't do have. I mean, there's no capacity to do that. I mean, there's a massive backlog, isn't it? It's going to take them ages to work through it. Yeah, I mean, uh, probably as much as a year. Yeah. Um, and then we've also got to bear in mind that that just because people are being vaccinated in increasing numbers, and I noticed the government's very is, is patting itself on the back this week, having done 2.6 million vaccinations last week, which is pretty impressive. But still, it's a long way to go. You've got to vaccinate everyone twice, effectively. Um, there's, there's still uncertainty as whether vaccinated people can pass on the virus or not. Um, you may be able to get to vaccinate the most vulnerable people, but you've still got to vaccinate the general populace. That will take that takes us way through to September to do that, um, and then you've still got the unknown um, issue of mutant strains and, and whether or not the vaccine will protect against those and whether they're going to start to become prevalent as well. So I think to suggest that you know obviously things are going to get better as we get a vaccine in place, but I don't believe for a moment that means that 2021 magically is going to change. I think, for example, adverts suggesting people should book their holidays and start flying abroad. I, just hugely <laughs> premature and optimistic. I understand why they're being run, but yeah. I don't. I don't think we're, we're. I don't. I don't see myself going abroad anytime soon, or going going somewhere cool and exciting on holiday. And I don't think landlords should assume that that service will be resumed in 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 that side of the sector. And the other point to make is, I think COVID will change the PRS. It has accelerated yeah. the pace of change in in lots of things. I mean, I mean, look at us now. We're we're doing a podcast by Zoom. Yeah. Um, prior to COVID, chances are we would have tried to have met up mm. and done it face to face. Um, and, and but the reality is, post COVID, will we meet up and do this face to face? Probably not. We'll probably no. do it by Zoom. Yeah, no, we mean, might meet face to face from time to time, but we'll do a lot more Zoom. Yeah, I mean, for example, our events. I mean, we always had an annual face to face conference. I don't know whether we'll ever do that again because the virtual one went so well so so i think that there are changes people want to be able to work from home and will look for properties with that space um, yeah. so that will change the type of style of property people are looking for um, for example we'll talk about hmos and always go about having having shared um sitting rooms in them but actually what people might want is a shared workspace uh, yeah. in, in their hmo more than they were and a sort of we work combined with a with a multiple occupancy property so there's a there's, the market will change in that respect, um, and then also of course the the centre of gravity for the uh, private rent sector has always been London, because there's there's I mean people just 
just fail to appreciate the size. The size of the PRS in London is bigger than the number of people living in Birmingham. All people, not just not just tenants, everybody. Mm. So the gravity of the PRS is, is in London and has always been and is vastly greater than any other part of the country. Um, but if people are leaving London, which does appear to be the case, then PRS tenants are no, no more or less immune to that than anybody else. Um, and so, so I think that, that there's a possibility there that, that, that the market will start to alter and the centre of gravity will start to alter and will spread. The southeast will become more important than London. And of course, people will move further afield than that. You know, people are going much, much further away from London and, and in some cases even leaving the country and teleworking from abroad. So, yeah. You know, the great the great sort of PRS focus on London is likely to change and that will uh, cause a lot of change in the market that will mean properties will be available in London the house price in London will, will probably I wouldn't say go so far as they drop but stabilize for a while um, whereas uh, pressure uh, on other parts of the country will increase and, and and as always of course government housing policy is about 20 years behind all of that um, and, and our house building statistics, despite all the vast promises about building houses, remain absolutely partless. And yet again, we're not going to meet the, even the, the fairly pathetic targets the government has set itself mm. um, are not going to be met. And of course, as usual, again, it's a sort of it's a sort of repeat of, a, of Stalin's Stalin's Russia, the great grand five year plan. And every time you've met it, the world's moved on. Yeah. Um, and you've got Stalin, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in Stalin, Russia, they're, they're producing uh, uh, iron left, right and centre where the world's trying to produce steel. And then they produce steel when the world's moving on towards plastics. And, and you've got this constant sort of, you know, in position with, with the government is it constantly going to say, oh, we've built lots of houses and we've built them all in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, there's this, this aspect to which COVID will change. And, and then, of course, we've already seen there's, there's some evidence already that landlords are leaving the sector um, mm -hmm. and that um, their property is being bought by other landlords. But, so, but so there's a certain amount of consolidation and, and your sort of one man, one property landlord is disappearing and you'll be getting landlords with three or four properties. Their approach to arrears, arrears management, tenants will be different. Their approach to organisations like the NRLA will be different, so that's that's one for Ben to keep himself occupied with. Um, so, and their approach to regulation and, and, and legislation will be different as well, which of course is it keeps me occupied in, in terms of my legal work. So, there's a there's a change there, and then you've got to think about how local authorities will will view regulation. There's an increased view and pressure to regulate, um, and I think that will continue. And, and the pointy end of that is local authorities simply, you know, piling on with more licensing schemes and and increasing uh, uh, that side of regulation as well. And that and, and, and all of that was just COVID. And I haven't even <laughs> mentioned any of the other things in 2021 yet at all. What else have we got coming up? What what new um, regulations have we got coming down the tracks? Well, I mean, the obvious big ticket item will be the Renters Reform Bill. Um, I hasten to add that is its working title. I do not know what it will finally be called. I don't think it will be called that. We'll probably get something a bit different. Um, so um, some kind of, of, of renters reform bill will, um, will appear. I think the problem with this is that everyone keeps going about it being about section 21. And obviously that's clearly going to be in there. There is going to be some end to section 21. 
although I think that's going to be far more complicated than people expect and, and it's going to breathe to an explosion in a number of section eight grounds and all kinds of other things but it's all the other stuff that's potentially in the bill that I think is, is should be interesting or concerning there is no way that you produce a renters reform bill with a sort of two line let's get rid of section 21 the government's already talked about lifetime deposits as being part of this bill. I don't know how they're going to put that in because it doesn't really work uh, on, on the model they're thinking about. They need to completely rethink deposits from scratch um, as a concept in, in a totally new way, I think, um, which is a problem itself because, of course, that means landlords have to rethink deposits in a totally new way, which is not, a, not an easy thing to persuade them to do for, for good reasons. Um, You've then got to think about what other things might be in there. I think there's going to be uh, all kinds of people stuffing in little amendments to start to things. It's inevitable that uh, there'll be an attempt to put an amendment to produce a national landlord registration scheme. You just can't say for sure the government won't actually acquiesce to that. Um, and then I think there'll be something around property standards. I'd be very surprised if there wasn't some attempt to do something that looked a bit like a property MOT or something along those lines. And, and to be fair, I think that would probably be a good thing as well. But I mean, if they get rid of Section 21, they've got all these prerequisites for, sec for using Section 21, which is an enforcement method. I mean, do you think they're going to put them onto um, using Section 8 notices? Because they'll lose that otherwise, won't they? Well, yeah, I mean, this is a problem. I mean, you don't require those prerequisites for Section 21, but they're quite a useful means of enforcement mm. um, because they keep people scared, I guess. Um, and, they, and they give a direct incentive for tenants to uh, deal with enforcement. And to some extent, um, one of the enforcing factors for tenancy deposit protection has been the three times the deposit penalty, which is often enforced by way of tenants in rent arrears um, defending on the basis that the landlord hasn't dealt with that. So it is possible that those things will all be pushed across to Section 8. Yes, the trouble with that is you've got to balance it up. If you end up putting people in a situation where they can't get their property back, which we very nearly had with Section 21, mm. gas safety certificates and things like Tricaro and Roundsfield and, and, and other such cases, um, which I should, should put out a, a flag for, it was the RLA and now the NRLA, of course, who... Who, who made Tricarol versus Roundsfield go to the Court of Appeal and made that happen and resolved that important issue. That, that for people listening, that was the one which was um, um, about um, serving a gas safety certificate and be, being forbidden forever for serving a Section 21 notice if you didn't serve it before the tenancy started, which, which has now been mitigated somewhat yeah. by the Tricarol case. But if you do the same thing for Section 8, you're going to run yourself straight into the Human Rights Act and, and Article 1 of Protocol 1 because you would, you would potentially be depriving landlords of their property with no recompense. Mm. It's one thing to remove Section 21 for reasons because landlords are still entitled to collect rent, which means they're being compensated for the use of their, of their property, which is what the, the Rights Act, the Human Rights Act or, or the, the Convention requires. If you deprive them of their... Their, their, their possession and also potentially deprive them of their compensation for its use, you put yourself in a rather difficult position and, and the European Court has, has ruled on this not so long ago in a case I wrote about, uh, uh, I think it's a while ago because I was training soliciting when I wrote the article, so it's one of the first uh, academic pieces I wrote about a case called Malta and Gauchy and, and indeed I wrote it with uh, Justin Bates who um, some listeners to some of your material tests will, will know because he's been on 
on this podcast, in fact. Not since he has, yes. Okay. Talking <laughs> about the Reps Reform yeah. Bill. Yes, yeah, and yeah. he's done, he's actually done, um, I did a webinar with him about the Tricarol case. Right, so he's, 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 he'll be known to people who listen to these things. Um, so uh, he and I wrote an article back when I was a trainee uh, about uh, the Walter and Gauchy case where Malta got itself into hot water by depriving landlords of their property on, on exceptionally low rents. Um, on, on what's called an emphatutic lease, which is not something that exists in the UK, but is still common in parts of Europe. Um, so, so it's difficult to push those things onto Section 8, unless you have a way out, as it were, mm. and a way for landlords to crack to their position um, and thereby obtain possession eventually, um, albeit perhaps not as quickly as they might have desired. So you've got to think that through. And, and of course, the government's history on these things and writing the legislation well has not has not been great. Well, yeah, there's been two amendments to the deposit rules, hasn't there, which has caused a lot of problems. I mean, the bit that we want to hold the minister to, David, on this is that he, he has gone on record as saying is that he wants to strengthen the possession rights of good landlords. Um, uh, and obviously, you know, we want landlords to have clear and comprehensive grounds uh, for repossession should they need it. Uh, obviously, we, we'd much rather they explore other options, but the, you know, the landlord must have um, uh, a straightforward way uh, of being able to get possession of their property back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is part of the problem, but it seems to me that more of the problem still remains the courts, and uh, the, the problem is less the legislation and uh, and more the fact that it just takes too damn long to go through the courts, and obviously that's a major problem post COVID. So I think the government that, that's has not said a problem. Been... That's on, not right? a problem just for landlords. That's a problem for everybody using the courts. I would have thought. It is, yeah. It comes to things like um, how you deal with things like accelerated possession procedures. So accelerated possession is only available currently for Section 21. There has been discussion about whether accelerated possession could be recast and used for particular types of, of Section 8 case, uh, where there was limited or no defence. So, for example, a landlord who, who's previously resided the property and wants it back and has given the appropriate notice, that, uh, so a ground one case yeah. or a ground two mortgage repo case. Um, or even rent arrears above a certain level. Um, mm. So it, it, there are there are cases where these things potentially should should become paper only and be much quicker. But the, as against that, you've got to think about the position of tenants. The reality is that most tenants don't turn up to defend possession. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, from a landlord's perspective, you could say in a very narrow sense, that's great. They don't turn up. Hurrah! But actually, it's not very good for landlords either. Because all that really ends up happening um, is that if they are going to do, deal with it, they'll deal with it really late in the day and, uh, and, and make an emergency application to have a, um, a, a, a warrant of eviction set aside. And that uh, means that landlords think they've, they're, they're home and dry, as it were, only to discover that actually they're not. Mm. Um, and it's more expensive. So it'd be better, in fact, if more tenants were attending court, ventilating their views, and, and either being told they have a case that it's being dealt with or being told regrettably they don't have a case, mm. then there's nothing to be dealt with and that they're going to have to leave so that they got on with, with, with doing the leaving um, on a more timely basis. And, and then, of course, you've also got to swing that into the local authorities and make sure that local authorities are, are giving good advice. The trouble is that despite guidance to the contrary, there is still a habit um, not across the board, but it still happens that local authority officers give give 
tenants the impression that they have to wait until a bailiff's warrant turns up and that's got to chop that's got to stay that that can't carry on as it is the local authorities must embrace the um i've got the name of legislation now um homelessness reduction act and yeah. and, and provide better advice and, and earlier interventions get people into in, into uh, better homes and the fact is we know we can do it now mm. i mean uh, one of the notable things that about about homelessness is that during covid the government effectively ended homelessness admittedly by spending a lot of money and putting people in hotels mm. but the fact is we know we can do it yeah um, if we've got deep enough pockets to deal with it yeah if, we, if we're prepared to to, to to put our hands in our pockets and prioritize it but, but to be fair the spend on doing it was pretty low by comparison with some other things that we think are important david i was going to ask you about the um you know the the, the court processes at the moment then because you know it, it seems to me that this situation is going to get far worse than it is uh, far worse at the moment than, than before it gets better and uh, I, I just wondered if you had any views about you know the longer term structure of of the court service is it is it a matter of funding because i saw the government were again patting themselves on the back last week about um you know the way they were dealing with the back backlog and on the same day i got an email as i as you know i sit as a magistrate saying that we were only dealing with essential work in london uh we would uh, go down to benches of two rather than three um uh, and that seemed to be somewhat contradictory to what the uh, the government had uh, had set out i couldn't immediately see how uh, any backlog would be dealt with uh, by focusing on essential work because soon enough everything is going to be essential because people are going to be waiting a, a very very long time not just on housing matters but on a whole range of criminal matters as well and, well, the problem and is that, that a lot of these things are, are, are a brilliant example of, of fake stats. Um, one of the ways that the backlog exists that is not picked up in any of the stats is, is, is courts simply don't open their post. So it's frequently the case that you'll call Central London County Court or one of the other big courts to be told that they haven't opened your post and there's a two-week delay on just opening letters, not, not doing anything with them, just opening them. And that doesn't hit the stats because it's not measured. Um, what is measured is the backlog that they have on actually processing stuff they've opened, but you don't even get into that queue <laughs> until they've opened it. And there's a two week back. So, so, you know, you've got this, and if you go and talk to the Minister of Justice, they don't even know that exists. Um, and of course, when a senior visit, but official goes and visits the, the court, all of that stuff is, is carefully swept away. So they operate in a, in a complete vacuum of understanding. And, and again, I, I I didn't want to labour the Soviet Union, but one of the great examples of the Soviet is, is this is the Soviet Union actually, and, and the position as, as as it collapsed around the Reagan era is that the Americans thought the Soviet Union was much more stable than it really was because they were spying on on the Soviets really comprehensively, but they hadn't appreciated that all the stats they were extracting from various spies were rubbish because the Soviets were lying to themselves about about their productivity and everything they were doing. <laughs> so the stats were just a lie all the way through. And, and equally, the same example would be Vietnam. The American uh, body count figures in Vietnam were just untrue from the beginning. Um, because every time uh, a, a, a small unit got into a contact, if they saw a blood trail, they called it a kill. And the next person up would round it up a little bit. And it would keep getting rounded up and rounded up all the way as these figures travelled up the chain until the Americans thought they'd essentially killed, the, killed every North Vietnamese person five times over. Um, and the same thing, because the statistics were rubbish. And the same thing is the case in, in, in the courts. The government has these stats, 
but it's not appreciating the fact that it's not collecting the right stats and that the stats aren't even true to begin with. And is that because, uh, you know, MOJ and HMCTS are, are, are difficult to engage with at the best of times? What, what, what's the reasons behind that? Or, or the fact that judiciary controls all of the, a lot of the casework and the decisions around casework? Well, there's a whole load of different reasons. I mean, the staff are incredibly poorly paid, um, especially given the, the importance of what they do to the fabric of society. I mean, if you think nurses are poorly paid, go and see what MOJ uh, court staff are paid. It's true. Mm. Um, and, you know, given the importance of the job, I'm kind of surprised that they have an absolute epidemic of bribery and, and, and other such things going on because, because it wouldn't even cost that much. <laughs> um, so uh, morale is poor as a rule. Um, they are grossly understaffed. And then I don't think that the Ministry of Justice really understands what's going on in their own court system. I mean, I, I appreciate that people from HMCTS will, will say I'm wrong and I've got no idea what I'm talking about. But my experience of what I see in the courts on a day-to-day -day basis, on a practice practicing basis, and what I hear from colleagues who are doing it, and what I've heard from MH, HMCTS and MOJ, just ain't the same thing. Mm. And there's quite a lot of examples on Twitter of, uh, about, for example, uh, behaviours in, uh, in, in, in terms of staff about letting lawyers into court, about uh, everyday racism against, uh, I mean, the current big ticket item is everyday racism against black um, and, and, and ethnic minority um, advocates being, mm. being, being, to, being assumed to be defendants in every situation, which is totally laughable. Yeah. Um, and HMCTS say, oh, that's not happening, but it absolutely is. Yeah. It has been for a long time. So, so the, the difficulty here is that, that they're saying that, that um, X is true and it just isn't. It's just not the case. And, they, and, I, and I don't have any under, real understanding of how the, they, they have such a distorted picture of what occurs in their, in their system. It's unlikely any of this is going to be fixed in terms of renters reform or, or, or anything that we've got to look forward to, would you think? Well, it can't be fixed in the renters reform bill because it's the wrong department, sure. the wrong bill. It's, I mean, this is the thing that's always hard for people to get their heads around is actually just how balkanised the British governmental system is. The, the main force for, uh, for bringing departments together is meant to be number 10 and it's, it's been incredibly bad at this. Um, for, for, for several successive prime ministers, um, for, for reasons, I hasten to add. I mean, obviously, if you're a prime minister and you balkanise your departments, you prevent uh, internal power challenges. And if you're not 100% uh, sure of your party position, that makes sense. So if, you, for example, you're strong in the country and don't have to go to an election for several years, but aren't strong within your party, then it makes sense to actually divide up your... Um, your, your, your top guys and your, your cabinet ministers who are your most likely challengers and, and, and have them at each other's throats as much as possible, um, you know, naming no names. Um, so um, they, they almost, sometimes they're actively discouraged from working together. Um, but um, there have been numerous studies about how to improve the court system. I mean, clearly we need to increase the amount of online working, but then you've got to balance that up with a lot of, the fact that a lot of terms are highly vulnerable and don't simply don't have access to to computers, laptops, broadband means for engaging with the courts. So if you if you if you make it put more of it online, you actually potentially make the problem of, of, of underrepresentation and access to justice worse. So 
And David, do you think, you know, I, I accept that, and that's something we discussed as part of the working group when some of these uh, changes were sort of muted over, over the summer. Uh, it, the judge leading the working group was very concerned about, you know, uh, people being able to access uh, advice and, and so forth. And we touched on, you know, the fact that, uh, and many organisations accept this, that, um, that very few tenants actually turn up to their hearing. I mean, one of the things that we that, that we think might be a solution to some of this stuff is is the role that conciliation and, and mediation plays earlier on in the process to make sure that people get the right sort of a, a, a advice in relation to their case. It certainly won't solve everything, but do you think that dealing with things in this way might help the court service or will it be a hindrance? Well, a study did come out uh, around this a while back, which has been heavily criticised. And, and of course, the Homelessness Reduction Act is, was kind of supposed to do this because it was supposed to require local authorities to uh, do more to keep people in their homes. I mean, there is evidence from around the world that, that, that services that are intended to keep, uh, to keep people in the homes by providing a mixture of support and conciliation and potentially uh, short-term access to money are helpful in keeping people in their homes. Um, but so far, I don't think the models that, that we're talking about in the UK are quite right. I, I suspect having a conciliation service that's, that's, that's tied to the court service is probably not going to work because it's too late. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. Um, I think we need to find something much earlier in the process. And I, th I still think, to a large extent, universal credit is to blame in that, in that the government is, only, is still not doing a great job of of getting UC frontline advisors to engage with the requirement to, to have stable housing for their for the people they're working with. It's improving and DWP has, has made strides in that direction. But there ain't much point in putting people in homes if sorry into work if they don't have a home to go home to after their job. They're not they're not going to stay in the job. And um, I don't think the DWP properly appreciates that. And I, I tend towards the view that crisis has tended to make on these things, which is which is that you need to have a homes first policy. And we don't have a homes first policy, we have a homes last policy in most cases. And, and that applies to our approach to homelessness, where we won't house people who, who have drug or alcohol addiction issues until they clear, clear those up, which is clearly not going to happen on the streets. And we sort of have the same approach to people on benefits, which is that we, we require them in many, especially if they're, if they're not high priority, to effectively get a job first and buy their way out of out of their position, which is completely illogical to my mind. So I think we need to rethink how we do that. Let's um let's look at a couple of other things. Um, David, there's this new um, act coming in in May about breathing spaces, which I think is worrying a lot of landlords. Tell us about breathing that. Space regulations, yeah, yeah. I think the first thing I would say is that. The worry I've read on the internet is 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 mostly drivel. Put <laughs> too fine a point. As as are so many things on the internet, I listen to that. Um, you know, there are there are breathing spaces, yes. But we should be clear: we have had debt debt um, consolidation services and debt advice services, and we've had informal processes where debt services um, reschedule debts for a long time in the United Kingdom. All this does is bring us in line with a number of other European countries um, and make those debt advice services formalized and make debt rescheduling formalized. 
So, so what's actually happening here is that if someone is in serious debt, including potentially renter is, then a, debt, a registered debt advisor is who is registered and authorized by the Financial Conduct Authority. So they're not, they're not, they're regulated. They're not just some fly by now cut night cowboys, which is what uh, is being impl implied on some of the stuff I've read. Um, if they believe that the tenant could enter into a debt solution, which means implicitly that they believe that the tenant has, has got to be able to pay the debts in some way, they are, they are allowed to put a breathing space onto those tenants' debts and you therefore can't approach or collect or, or proceed against the tenant for those debts. But one of the key elements of this is that, is that tenants have to pay their rent during the period of the breathing space. It's an absolute obligation and it is a criteria of the breathing space. And if you don't do that, you lose the breathing space. So what, why I think this is interesting is that it is well known that the vast majority of renters' debt is not collected. Um, it's usually difficult to collect well, or impossible to collect. There's usually not much point in collecting it. Um, so people don't do it. And, and, and the, the, other, the other part of this, of course, is that because tenants think that it's a one-way street, once they fall into rent arrears, they usually don't bother fixing it on the basis that they think they're gonna be leaving anyway. So they hold, hold the money to pay for the next property, which, which of course doesn't speak well for Ben's talk about mediation and conciliation, because you can't exactly have conciliation if neither party wants to conciliate. Um, if the tenant's already mentally moved on to the next house, then they're not really in much of a mood to conciliate and pay and pay up some of their debts. By creating a breathing space, it is possible, and I put it no higher than that, it could all go horribly wrong, of course, um, that we might be able to start looking at, at this issue and, and start to pay down some of this debt, which is, which is bad for landlords, it's bad for tenants, and it's bad for the economy, and it's bad for tax collection as well, because obviously, if landlords don't get rent, they don't have to pay tax on it. Um, and, and I think particularly, and of course, one of the reasons this is all being done, of course, for May, is of course due to COVID. We've got an explosion in rent arrears at the moment, and the government's only got a limited number of solutions to that. Um, okay. Either they pass some piece of legislation that effectively writes off all rent arrears, which is what, what, what some uh, tenant advocates want, but, you know, that that's complete madness. It leaves landlords carrying debts that they didn't reasonably expect to do. And, and you wouldn't expect it. And they're not going to write debt off for any other sector of society. So why landlords? Um, I don't think it's particularly reasonable to say landlords should have all their debt written off and other people shouldn't. Um, and, and of course, it's just bad for the economy generally to go around writing off debt and it undermines, undermines confidence in the economy. Or you turn around and, and basically leave it all on tenants and say, you've got to pay and you end up with a generation of people with vast debt um, and ruined credit ratings, that doesn't seem very helpful either. You do what Wales and Scotland have done to varying degrees and offer some kind of loan scheme. Um, although both of those schemes are too small, even for, for their own areas. And, and, the, and the, a loan scheme for England would have to be vastly greater given the size of the PRS. And then you get to all kinds of inevitable situations where there'll be there's bound to be stories about people who should have got a loan but didn't, shouldn't have got a loan but did, um, got the loan and then spent it all on, I don't know, drugs, prostitution and alcohol. Um, uh, and, and it's going to be criticised from all sides. So, so that's, that, that's unattractive politically, I'm sure, from the government, although I suspect it might be the right answer in the end.
Um, or finally, you have the option that they're trying to go down, which is where the debts are still there, but you find a way to reschedule and refactor some of those debts and potentially write off some of them and reschedule the rest and you, and you stop the spiral of interest accruing. And that makes some sense to me in that in practice, what well, that probably means is that everyone takes a little bit of the pain. Mm. Um, so tenants will have to pay the debt, unfortunately for them, that's, that's hard for them, I accept. Um, landlords will, will have to get it more slowly than they'd wanted without any interest. Um, but particularly if the, government, if the government is correct and the economy does recover and many of the people who are not working just now go back into work, rescheduling their debt makes, makes, makes complete sense. And it's not quite the disaster, David, that you know, a number of people on the internet suggest that it is based on what, on, on, well, based on our reading of it anyway. Yeah. But the, inter the internet, to some extent, is, is, of course, set up to manufacture disaster. I mean, uh, the internet has claimed disaster over tenancy deposit protection, HMA licensing and all kinds of things. And as always with these situations, everything they say is true to enough of a degree to make people believe it. I mean, there were, there have been difficulties for landlords with tenancy deposit protection, but I would say the overall end of end of state has, has not been that bad for landlords and has been generally positive Agreed. Um, for the sector. But, but you know, the, there are difficulties with everything. Will people abuse debt moratoriums? Absolutely, yeah. of course they will. Mm. Um, will Whatever you put in place, there'll be... Yes. Yeah. There will always be people that abuse, no matter what is put out. Uh, uh, you know, whether you're a landlord, tenant, or somebody else, there will always be people that take advantage of the situation in any sure. thing that you do. I, absolutely, I do think part of the problem, and I, I do feel this about sex at the moment, is it's just become far too polarised. Mm, I agree um, with that. There's yeah. an awful lot of people going out suggesting that shelter are involved in debt advice services. They're not. Um, they actually provide, and they are contracted by the government to provide overarching services um, to debt advice charities about the law, but they don't provide frontline debt advice service. They do, of course, provide frontline uh, assistance uh, with people facing eviction, and some of that advice may well suggest be referral to debt advice services advising about moratoriums, of course. But far too many landlords have this shelter are the baddies approach to life. Mm. And Shelter's just a charity with perfectly reasonable charitable objects. And, you know, some of the silly ideas that come out, like shelter should be made to house people, um, just, just dramatically missing the point. And in fact, shelter has accepted that it, I mean, there's this big talk about shelter having too much cash and having a lot of money at its coffers, but shelter actually accepted that. If you read their most recent trustees report, the trustees actually told shelter they had too much money in their bank account and they had to reduce it over a period of time. And they've actually got a plan in place to reduce the amount of, uh, of uh, holdover funds they're carrying and use some of it. So to suggest that shelter are, are in some, you know, but, but equally, I think shelter have, have made the rod for their own back. I think some of their approach uh, to the sector has not been helpful. Some of the comments they've made have just been untrue, um, more so under their previous chief executive than their current one. I think their previous chief executive was highly divisive. Uh, their current one, far more emollient, far more reasonable. But some of the statements they make aren't true. Some of the statements made by other uh, tenant groups aren't true or are based on, on, on just the most rubbish studies. 
there's simply no point, and I think the press... A survey of a dozen people. Yes. <laughs> and then they extrapolate it out, so it's 50% of the population. And then the world's yeah. going to end. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and equally, you know, landlords have, have not produced great surveys on every occasion either. Uh, don't get me wrong, that's not to say that landlord surveys are automatically, magically better surveys. But... Um, I mean, just on that point, David, what we've always tried to do, certainly recently, is we've made a far greater use of independent research of, of tenants to support, uh, you know, some of the discussions around debt and always over 2000 uh, people. And our surveys of, of landlords that we put out have been in excess of, of 4000 uh, uh, members. But, you know, they are <laughs> extrapolated from that base. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it's... Uh, for us, it, we, we have to make sure that what we say is statistically relevant, particularly if we're calling out people that are doing uh, you know, heavily extrapolated surveys. Maybe we should um, quickly um, take a look at Wales, because um, there are some big changes coming on down the tracks in Wales, David, and, and maybe we ought to just sort of flag that up. That there's, um, there's the implementation of the, um, was it the Renting Homes Wales Act? What's happening about that? Yeah, um, renting homes is a problem area. I mean, obviously it's been sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting since 2016 mm. when it was passed. And I think that's not any good. Um, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to have a piece of legislation that sits on the statute books un, un, un in effect um, for, for five years and, and arguably makes a mockery of democratic process. Um, that said, I think the Welsh Government recognises that and they have been trying quite hard to sort it out, but I, I suspect the truth of the matter is they probably bit off a bit more than they could chew and thought it would be easier than, than, than it has been. Um, they have said it will be in place before the Assembly elections, which are scheduled for May this year. I, I don't see those Assembly elections being pushed off. I see them being highly postal voting, but it's not like the London mayoral elections, which are likely to be pushed off again this year for another year. If you push off the Welsh Welsh elections, that that really undermines the devolution process. And at a time when you uh, when over the weekend we had a lot of stories about Northern Ireland and Scotland um, being increasingly in favour of, of, of full independence. Um, undoubtedly the, the, the government is anti that and has been quite robust in that but it's going to have to draw a, to, to, to steer a careful course and pushing off uh, an election in in wales is risky um so i think they'll be reluctant to do it but the flip side of that is if this is really coming into force in may i haven't seen any consultations um any draft guidance documents and there's a, a welter of guidance and regulation that has to go with this and the welsh government normally is quite consulting about these things um so if they haven't been consulting on it where is it um are they going to just do it without consultation or and this is what i really fear is it's going to be like the renting homes fees etc wales act where it came into force and the regulations appeared over the following two to three weeks but annoyingly, those regulations actually modified the way the Act operated on the ground. And so Welsh agents effectively had to change their processes three times in three weeks, uh, not least because one of the sets of regulations was modified. Um, and I'm a bit worried that we're going to end up with creeping renting homes in that the Act is going to come into effect shorn of some of its provisions, which will appear 
during the course of the latter part of 21 and into 22 as the relevant regulations are passed. So, so a lot of the things you could, you, could, you could bring the act into effect without necessarily bringing all of its bits fully into effect um, because a lot of it gives Welsh ministers power to pass regulations that will affect things like, for example, a power to mandate the form of a tenancy agreement. But you could bring the act into effect and then implement the power later. But the danger of doing that, of course, is that is that instead of landlords having to go out and do some serious learning on, on one occasion and learn the whole thing, is you have to do it in bits. And the government already said that it got had, in my view has its has its um its its timings for learning completely wrong. It thinks that lawyers can do it in a day and landlords can do it in half a day. And I just I just don't see those numbers being I wasn't sure those numbers were right anyway. But they're certainly not right if you end up doing it in bits because 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 it, you know, it doesn't work that way if you're going to do a training course and you split it into four chunks the total length of training takes longer um, than if you've done it all in one hit that's just the, that's just the reality of life and i think a day for lawyers was a bit unrealistic i mean uh, i've spent more than a day on this but obviously i suppose what the welsh government thinks is that i'll sort it all out digest it down and <laughs> And then a lawyer will spend a day reading what I say and, and or listening to me and, and away they go. But you've got your book coming out at some stage, haven't you? Well, yeah, it's, I've, I'm working on a book. I've, I've got a book out coming out shortly on Northern Ireland law. I've got I'm working on a book for Wales law, which is which is loosely timed to come out in May. But um, I suspect its actual arrival time will, will depend a little bit on on whether it's got anything to say. And if it just says, oh, there's a Renting Homes Act, but it's still not in force, I'm not likely to, <laughs> to, to let it go out for publication until... It'd be a very slim volume. It, it'll be getting slimmer all the time, yeah. Um, so I suspect it, it'll it'll come out around about, it'll aim to come out around about the time Renting Homes comes into effect with as much information as I can get in there about what's going on. But yeah. it will be very irritating if it's published, then becomes um, almost immediately irrelevant because because the regulations have changed and if that's going to be the case i'll probably sit on it but mm. that's not good for the for, for the sector either the, the, the idea of renting homes was to have an r day effectively when everyone transitioned from one system to the other rather than having a transition period but if you have an r day but then effectively have a transition period because you keep changing it then you get the worst of both worlds don't you so landlords in wales need to watch out for this now as well seems to be very alert. I mean, they are assisted by the fact that Rent Smart Wales means there's more direct communication channels to landlords. And one of the problems with the sector generally is the difficulty of communicating with landlords. Yeah. Um, one of the, the pluses for a landlord registration scheme is that you improve your direct communication to landlords, or at least mm. the landlords who have signed up to a registration scheme anyway, uh, which is also one of the negatives about the whole thing, of course. Um, uh. So... Uh, there is more direct comms in Wales, which helps, but of course, people have to read the stuff and have to understand it. And uh, it, it, it's not easy to understand. And there are aspects of renting homes that are not well written mm. um, and are confusing and, and hard to, uh, to operate on the ground. Uh, for example, there is no equivalent to a Section 8 notice with its, with its clearly defined menu of grounds in a schedule to the Act. There are a series of different ways to obtain possession which are scattered around the act in different sections. Yeah. 
Um, so it's not it's not the more definable roadmap that you see in England uh, and 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 in Wales currently under the eighty eight Act. It's it's much more of a of a pick and mix assortment, really. Hmm. So where are we then? Um... Not much to look forward to, I reckon. No, maybe maybe a bit of sunshine in the summer. <laughs> maybe you'll be able to go on holiday in England, but. Um... Well, I don't see a change as being a bad thing. I mean, I think most people accept, most landlords accept that the sector has stayed this way for a long time and needs to change. Mm. I mean, I suppose there are, there, are, there are two ways to think about it. Either you have big bang style change, as happened in Scotland and as Wales wants to do, or you have a process of, a, of incremental change. Both have positives and negatives. 2021 is, is, is a process of incremental change probably also accelerated by social change. Mm. But, you know, I, I don't have a great deal of sympathy with, for landlords who say, oh, everything should stay the same as it always was. The Housing Act 1988 is ancient. For heaven's yeah. sake, in 1988, I was in shorts for school. <laughs> I mean, I was, you know, I was- I was a terrible not, image. <laughs> it is a whole thing. I was, I was 12, for heaven's sake. And I'm not exactly young. Yeah. Um, this act has been around for a very, very long time. And to suggest that we shouldn't review it significantly after 30 odd years, I mean, it was make any sense to me. It was brought into effect to kickstart a development of the private rented sector that was moribund at the time. So it had a different purpose. We're in a different place now. Yeah, and it's I worked, know. I guess. It has worked, <laughs> yes, but I mean, it's brought its own problems with it. You Absolutely. know, we're in a very different place now to where we were in, you know, in the 1980s. Um, so, you know, you've got a choice. You either throw the whole thing away and start again, which is a huge job of work that no one really, and, and frankly, there's no real political desire to do it, which is why it's only been done in default uh, competencies. Or you embark on a process of alteration and, and there are advantages to a process of alteration because it means that you can renegotiate each stage and, and test test difference and and you know if things don't work you can let them go but on but, the other hand you get a patchwork system that's unbelievably complex well i mean as a lawyer of course that's not such a bad thing well we don't <laughs> as long as you're all right we're okay <laughs> gives us more to do training on <laughs> but, but yeah I, I agree i mean there's obviously the, the, it's not the job of government to make work for lawyers but for sure so you know you've got to decide what you want you either have a patchwork system that's quite complex and that's good for lawyers and it has the benefit that that you that change is incremental um with, with the downsides that people need more legal advice and have to spend money on it and have to constantly keep themselves up to date, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, or you have a, have a situation where everything changes overnight, which has risks associated with you having got it completely wrong, frankly. Mm. Um, and also means that everyone has to do a lot of work. Um, and, and then you still have creeping incremental change anyway, because we live in a common law system. And so, and so the interpretation of the legislation will continue to shake out over, over the ensuing period. And, and of course, that can be dangerous in itself. Look at tenancy deposit protection. Yeah. Um, the problem with, with the courts making a decision about what the legislation meant is it's retrospective because it's what the legislation always meant, mm. um, not what it means uh, post an am amendment by the government. So the risk of having a big bang change, I mean, the, 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 the Renting Homes Wales uh, Act 
is already being amended. There is a Renting Homes Wales Amendment bill that is that was supposed to have finished its passage through the Assembly, but has been stalled by COVID, but will finish its passage through the Assembly, which alters substantial parts of the Act. So, and it's not even in force. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so the reality is it, it, it's always going to be reviewed and changed. So there's an argument that says, well, why don't you just accept that and do things bit by bit? Um, that I mean, against uh, the, the the counter argument there, David. Well, not a counter argument. I, I you know I, I agree with both of those things. But for the landlord that's sick and tired of change, um, you know that th that is just something that they are going to have to get used to. The only thing that is certain, I would think, over the course of the next year is there's going to be a shed load of change, whether it's incremental or big bang, and that's you know that's going to cause landlords uh, and and others, you know, um, to to think about. Uh, yeah, their investment and whether they are in the right place. Um, but that change is in in inevitable, I would suggest. Well, I yeah. appreciate some landlords are sick and tired of change, but but you know you could you know any business could say that. Indeed. Yeah. And no indeed. business, no business has a god-given right to an income, and landlords are the same. Yes, I think I think landlords who are saying they're sick and tired of change need to decide whether they are really sick and tired of change, um, and 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 whether this the sector is still right for them and, and indeed you know uh, with the best will in the world any investment should be subject to review and some landlords i think are, are too happy just to sit on the investment and moan about it so either sit on the investment and accept that it's an altering investment through uh, market yeah i mean it's a bit like saying i don't know moaning about bitcoin Bitcoin is an investment. It's a, it's a very high risk investment, but it's an investment that's likely to be regulated um, yeah. and is becoming regulated and increasing. I mean, already uh, the United Kingdom's introduced regulation around Bitcoin, around money laundering and Bitcoin, um, and around um, the equivalent of the initial public offering, the IPO, the, the ICO, the initial coin offering. We're, it's regulated in America. It's about to become regulated in the United Kingdom. Um, so you could say, oh, that's an outrage. Why is the government going around regulating, regulating stuff? That means there's change. But even Bitcoin's subject to change. It's the most modern, you know, thing. Mm. everything changes. Everything and, changes. And, and, and people need to either deal with the changes or not deal with the changes. And, if, and, and, and that probably means looking for a different, a different investment path. Probably the better solution, though, is, um, is training keeping up to date i mean there's lots of ways people can keep up to date um there's my service and there's your service ben and uh and there's the blogs on the jmw website that you write david <coughs> uh, so uh there are many landlords need to invest in their sector more actually mm. i mean uh, mm. I mean, uh, membership of, of of landlord associations is very low despite mm. there being people on on the internet it's the same people most landlords just don't engage enough actually and, and given the amount of money they've got invested in the sector um, and the fact there are very direct routes for them to engage i i think it's a bit odd actually mm. you know if i invested half a million pounds which is probably where you're off most people in something and i had a route to engage with the policy debate around that i'd probably think about engaging in it yeah. There you go. Um, a, new, a new year's resolution for people yeah. to get more more engaged. Well, I mean, and, but this is the problem. I mean, the mm, reality is, I mean, is, one of the eternal frustrations at the RLA and indeed at the NRLA is is actually how few people you represent in respect of the, the sector. If you go and look at the average for a trade association, 
it's around 20% of the sector is represented. Um, I'm not going to make Ben come out with his percentage, but it's a lot less than 20%. It is. Yeah, absolutely. It um, is. And, and that's a problem because I've been in numerous meetings with MPs and who say things like, how many landlords do you represent? And it's a, it's a mechanism to, to, to reject what you have to say. I mean, I, you can flip that around. I mean, uh, it is equally difficult for people like Shelter and Genrent and all these people to, to be clear about who they represent. And it's different. They're, uh, they're, 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 they're not representing the same kind of group. It's a more nebulous and, and less cohesive grouping, but better engagement by everybody and more intelligent engagement and more nuanced engagement would be better for all concerned and, and the trouble is if landlords don't engage then you leave the field to to more polarized opinion more often than not yeah well we've um we've been talking for a while and uh, i i think you have another appointment don't you david so we'd uh... I, I do i have an appointment with some, a bit of child care <laughs> <laughs> my wife can do it can do a meeting <laughs> so um, we, we probably better wrap up so um thank you so much for um for talking to us and um, no doubt you will come on this podcast again at some stage. Well, if, if I haven't bored everyone to death. <laughs> and we can look back at, uh, at whether anything you said was right, wrong or indifferent. Yes, we can uh, do a reflective. I have a 100% record on wrongness, actually. <laughs> I, I sometimes wonder if people in the government <laughs> listen to what I say and then just do the opposite. Okay, well, well thank you so much, David. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Well, that was an interesting discussion, wasn't it, Ben? It was. It's always interesting to get David's uh, take on uh, take on life, <laughs> yes. and uh, yeah, hopefully it won't leave um, our, our listeners uh, uh, too depressed. But you know, it's going to be a busy year as far as legislative change or or guidance is is concerned, and landlords do need to be prepared for that. Yeah. So. Um... I think really, I suppose the message for landlords is that you really need to keep on top of things and you need to keep doing training and you need to read, um, you know, articles and, and just keep yourself informed because, you know, this, this is a time of change and, and landlords think, need to know what they're doing. You're, you're right. And, you know, as, as David alluded to, you know, the only thing that's certain at the moment is uncertainty. And, you know, what we what we have seen, uh, certainly in, in the past year, is moving goalposts and quick legislation and uh, use of guidance and, and, and landlords and tenants actually, you know, waiting on uh, announcements and not knowing what the operating environment is going to be. But what David set out is a couple of uh, you know, fairly big things that are coming down the track in addition to that as well. So, yeah. you know, there, there's no room for uh, for ignorance or not or, or not knowing what's coming. So, you know, keep up to date with the NRLA post, keep up to date with the Landlord Law post, sign up to all of our bulletins and um, make sure you know what's happening. Yeah. And good luck as well, because I think we're going to need it. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be tough times. So um, to wrap up, I'd just like to thank our special guest, David Smith. And uh, we will be back next month with another podcast on a topic which we haven't yet decided. No, we haven't actually, <laughs> but we'll give it some thought. I'm sure it will be uh, super duper interesting. It'll be uh, fascinating. You won't want to miss it. See you then. See you then. Bye.